Turn, if you would, in God's Word tonight to the Gospel of Matthew. The pastor graciously invited me to preach New Year's Eve. That didn't work, and so he said, let's do it again, so I'm doing tonight. I didn't realize until my wife assured me this morning that he's preaching through Matthew, it looks like. So I think I'm taking something that's uh, coming from him. But the real focus is uh, in Matthew 11:28 to 30. And can you hear that too much? I suppose not. So we're going to read tonight Matthew 11:20 to 30, with a particular focus on 29, but also 28 to 30. Let's look at God's word here in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 20. Then he, that is Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Zidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we bow low in your presence now as we hear this word. May we not only hear it with the outer ear, but may you give us true spiritual hearing. May the eye of faith be ours, that we may receive and believe this word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Matthew 11. 29. These astounding words, as I trust we'll see, are at the heart of the most appealing invitation ever uttered. Now I'm going to say just right at this point that I'm particularly indebted, more so than usual in a sermon, I'm particularly indebted to Dane Ortland's new book, which I think many of you are familiar with, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and sufferers. And we'll be thinking about a lot of what he points out in some way or another in this sermon. But these few words, particularly I'm gentle and lowly in heart, are so remarkable because they reveal 
that the very heart, the very essence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon notes that only in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, in all the gospel accounts, does Jesus himself open up to us his very heart. For him to say, I'm gentle and lowly in heart, is for our Lord to tell us what he is at the core of his being, in essence, fundamentally. We note here that biblically, heart is not something opposed to head, as we often popularly understand it. Rather, in the Bible, Old and New Testaments, heart includes head and means not only the emotions, but the whole of the inner man. You might say, who we are on the inside. That's what the, the heart is, biblically. And the words Jesus chooses to tell us who he is in heart, especially in this context, are wonderful and encouraging, more than we could ever hope or imagine. So at the end of Matthew 11, Jesus, and here's our theme, Jesus reveals to us his very heart. Jesus reveals to us his very heart, and we're going to see three things. First of all, he is gentle. Secondly, he is lowly. And thirdly, he is inviting. He's gentle, he is lowly, and he's inviting. And so we say, first of all, Jesus, after pronouncing woes on the unbelieving cities of his day, which we heard from verse 20 to 24 particularly, after pronouncing those woes and further declaring the inability of those wise in their own eyes to know the Father, as you see in verses 25 to 27, after that, he turns to his beleaguered disciples. His disciples who are going through all sorts of trials and tribulations who certainly don't really understand what is happening before their eyes. And you know what the disciples are like before and even at the cross. They're not very clear on what's going on. And he says to these disciples, I am gentle in heart. To the likes of us sinners and sufferers, this is, I would submit to you, a surprising word. Let's think about why that's so. Why is it a surprising word? I think it is because we might expect Jesus as the one who reveals the Father. That's what he tells us. He's the one who reveals the Father. We might think he would say something else. Given that he is God come in the flesh. Now let me be really clear here. You might say, oh, lots of people in the world would not be surprised if they heard what we're saying here, that Jesus is saying, I'm gentle in heart. I agree with you. I agree with you that lots of people out there would not be surprised because they don't understand or believe Jesus is God. They just see him as a lowly, meek, gentle teacher and prophet. I have to remember to stay over here. Sorry about that. I'm not accustomed to being tethered in this way. I will endeavor to do so. But Jesus is understood by us to be God come in the flesh. And so we perceive him on that level rather differently from all the people out there who just see him as merely a teacher or a prophet or a good man, a great man. No, he's God. He's holy, ineffably so. Holy, holy, holy. And this is the way he speaks. We might expect as believers, exalted and dignified. 
perhaps. Or, truth be told, sometimes we often think of God. We often think of God and what righteousness must mean and what holiness must mean. And we might actually, if we're honest, expect him to say something like, I'm austere and demanding in heart. I think we easily see him that way. I think the enemy certainly wants us to see him that way. But we're not even told something like, I'm joyful and generous in heart. We're told gentle and lowly in heart. He possesses and embodies, we can say, and we've just been hinting at this, a glory and a grandeur that feels at odds, I think, with gentle. Now you might say, well, yes, pastor, but, but you preachers, you good reformed preachers all the time tell us that, that not only is Jesus great, but he's also good, and he is good. He is great, he's good. Little children, you know this. You say this in prayer. You say God is great and that means he has all power. He is beyond our comprehension. He fills the universe that he made. But then we say also God is good. And that means he's morally pure. He's holy. He's righteous. He's loving. He's caring. It's all these things, these attributes. Well, we know that he's great and he's good. But many of us have read or studied Sproul or J.C. Ryle and many others who tell us rightly that one of the chief attributes of God, what we would call communicable attributes, one of his chief attributes or moral perfections is his holiness. We understand that. Might we not expect above all then that he would tell us that he's holy in heart? And you're saying, are you saying that he's not? No, I'm not saying that at all. Please listen. I'm emphasizing how he chooses here to speak about himself, and it shouldn't be lost on any of us. He says, he who is unalterably holy, you might think, well, he must be repulsed by sinners, even justified adopted ones. I once asked somebody I was counseling who was really struggling with some sin. And I said, well, does God love you? And he said, oh, yes, Jesus died for me. He cares. I said, does he like you? And he's like, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I thought so. I thought you felt that. I thought that's the way you saw it. Because what you're thinking is, I wouldn't love somebody like me. If I were holy and righteous and just, I wouldn't love somebody like me. Mm-hmm. That's right. You need to find out and figure out and hear who Jesus really is. Jesus loves us. Jesus reveals himself to us as gentle. Yes, we know that he accepts us in him. He accepts us because of things like the glorious exchange whereby Jesus has taken our sin and given us his righteousness. But we often think, I think, something like at heart he must be He must be something to us who are sinners, yet righteous at the same time. We understand we're sinners and we're righteous at the same time. He must be something that's forbidding and off-putting. Certainly the Pharisees in presenting God to Israel depicted him in this way, didn't they? This is the way the Pharisees portrayed God. Laying, Jesus said, unbearable burdens on the hearers. He said that's what the Pharisees did. They, They laid burdens 
that the hearers couldn't bear. And Jesus here is very clearly the burden lifter, the burden bearer. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Let's drill down a little bit in that statement, I am gentle. The Greek word translated gentle here in the ESV occurs just three other times in the New Testament. So let's quickly look at that. In the first beatitude, and the pastor's already covered that one, Matthew 5, 5, in which we're told that the gentle or the meek will inherit the earth. Now there's the first clue uh, that, that expectation should be, should be understood to, to be stood on head here. Because you don't think, we don't tend to think of actually, if we think about it, the gentle or the meek inheriting the earth. We think about the people who were the, the moguls, the power brokers, Washington and Brussels and all the capitals of the world. We think of these people as those who inherit the earth. But the scriptures tell us otherwise. It's the gentle. Here we see Jesus as one who's standing things on its head. Secondly, the second usage is in the prophecy of Matthew 21.5, which is quoted from Zechariah, that Jesus is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, gentle and mounted on a donkey, the triumphal entry of our Lord. And then the third use is in Peter's encouragement for wives, notice this, for wives to attend to the inner person and to cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. Christ has that spirit, a gentle spirit. So we say Jesus is meek, he's humble, he's gentle. He's not trigger happy, he's not harsh, he's not reactionary, he's not easily exasperated. He is, as Ortland notes, the most understanding person in the universe. Again, I would suggest that we, we don't think of him often in that sort of accessibility. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger or a wagging finger, but open arms. Come unto me, he says, all you who labor and are heavy laden. So he draws us to him. This character of his gentleness draws us to him and him to us. Let's just get that first part. Us to him. That's the obvious part, right? No matter how gruff or tough you are, in your deepest distress, and there are some, and I've dealt with some, some guys like this, some guys in our churches, and you know, they're, they're kind of, maybe they're the quiet, strong type, like, you know, get those, get those uh, wagons in a circle, pilgrim, that sort. And, you know, the, the gentle Jesus, nah, I don't so much need that. But I've seen them in real crises where they've lost their job. They've lost their best friend. They've lost their wife. They've lost and they've suffered loss. And they need this Savior who is gentle, understanding. That's very attractive and assuring when we're in great distress, how Jesus reaches out to someone as he does. It's, it's easy to make fun of that gentleness until you need it, until you need it. And there come times when all of us need it. Well, here's the, the surprising part. It's not really surprising that, that we're drawn to him when we hear and understand his true character, 
but that he's drawn to us. I come back to that. He's only ever and always as gentle and meek, moving towards us, never away from us. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize that when you walk out of the way, when you walk in sin, perhaps some gross sin, you, you go out of fellowship with him, it's you who have gone away. He's never, don't you know when you come back to Christ, maybe you've just been out of fellowship, you've not been in the word, you've not been in prayer, you've been cold in your life, and you come back to him with some sense of renewal. Don't you know he never went anywhere? It was you who have gone on, on bypath meadows to, to quote Pilgrim's Progress. It's you who are out there wandering. And I've asked people, in these counseling situations who are really in tears, confessing their struggle with sin, perhaps the way they speak to their wife and children, any number of things. And I say right there in that sin, do you think Jesus is repulsed by you? And they're like, oh yes. And I said, no, he's not. Well, Jesus doesn't approve of sin. I'm not saying that he does. I'm saying he ever draws near to you and wants you to draw near to him. Whenever you sin, the enemy would suggest to you, your own flesh would, the world would, go away from God. Flee! Rather, God would say, come. No, come. Come confessing. Come repenting. Come believing. We may get easily put off with each other. We may be ashamed to call one another brother. But the book of Hebrews says he's not ashamed to call us brothers. That, that's, a, that's the kind of phrase that's worth thinking about a lot. That's remarkable. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. So he is gentle. That's what we were thinking about. He is gentle and he is lowly in heart. He is gentle and he's lowly in heart. Clearly this word overlaps with gentle and communicates a single reality about Jesus' heart, that he's gentle and lowly in heart. The Greek word, this particular Greek word, is often translated as humble, as we see in James 4.6. James 4.6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this is our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, when you understand who he was and that he came out of the ivory palaces. I was just preaching that from another text this morning. I, I was re referring to Psalm 45, how that Jesus comes full of garments, full of aloes and cassias, comes out of the ivory palaces, as the old gospel song used to say, into a world of woe. He humbles himself. Why? Why did he ever do that? He is gentle and lowly. This is part of his love for you. He loves you. And the moving cause of the incarnation and the atonement was his love for his people. He loved us and he came to save us. The word typically, this word, the Greek word typically through the New Testament refers not to humility so much as a virtue, but to humility in the sense of destitution 
or being thrust downward by life circumstances. And you have that use of it in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms, you get this. We see it in a few places. In the Magnificat, Mary sings of the way in which God exalts those of a humble state, Luke 151. He exalts those of a humble state, and our Lord Jesus Christ was humble. I think, in fact, you may have got a particular taste of that this morning, did you not, from your passage, as you heard that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. From the palaces of heaven to the degradation of earth. And of course, those genealogies demonstrate in Matthew and Luke that had there still been a king in Israel, he would have been it. He would have been the king. Had the kingship not fallen by the way. But he came, as we've just thought in the Advent and Christmas season, not as befitted a king, but as befitted a one who came to save his people from their sins. And so when Mary rejoices that God exalts those of humble estate, that applied to none more than her son. Paul too says in Romans 12, 16, not to be haughty, but to associate with the lowly. Here again, the word is used. To associate with the lowly, not the ones who are the life of the party, but maybe the ones at the party who cause the host to cringe. And this word amazingly, and I don't want you to miss this because I know you had the supper this morning. This word amazingly, this word for humility, for humble, for lowly, refers to the Lord of glory not, e not only in his humiliation, but even in his exaltation. You say, how so, pastor? Do you not understand that this table of the Lord is a remarkable thing inasmuch as the Lord of glory who has ascended on high and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He who is in his exaltation continues to come to you who are in your humiliation under the emblems of his humiliation. You had communion this morning with Christ, with the Father, Son, and Spirit, and with all God's people who are members of his mystical body, you had communion together of the one who is the exalted Lord. You partook of the exalted Christ, but you did so under the emblems of his humiliation. These are not emblems of his exaltation. This is the body broken. That's the very nadir. That's the very centerpiece of Christ's humiliation. His death on the cross. And that's what this signifies and seals to you. Though he is exalted, he continues as gentle and lowly. And he says to his people... When he gives the marching orders, as it were, to his church, you recall, when he tells them to go 
to make disciples of all the nations, baptizing and teaching them whatsoever I've commanded. And then he says there, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When I was a child, I thought that was a very odd thing. Because Jesus says, Lo, I am with you. And just almost in the next breath, he's saying, Bye. And he goes away. It was a long time later that I recognized well, how is this not teasing them or something? How is he with them when he goes away? He's with them in a new dynamic because of the Pentecostal coming of the Spirit. The Spirit who had been there with the people of God comes in Pentecostal power to, to constitute the new covenant church. And in his coming... Jesus says in John 14, 23, My Father and I will come to you by the Spirit. So that when the Spirit comes, the risen, ascended, exalted Christ comes. And he's with us at this table. We're in fact lifted up. We're lifted up into the heavenlies, into the exaltation. But notice this. We are still, of course, in our humiliation. Everybody here understands that I trust. Not just because you're having to listen to me tonight. That's a part of it. But your humiliation will continue until Christ comes again. We follow after him. This is our humiliation until he returns where we enter our exaltation. He entered his exaltation at resurrection. And he invites us into fellowship with him in his exaltation. But it's under the emblems of his humiliation to us who are in our humiliation. Why would he keep doing that? Why would he continue to do that till he comes? Because he's lowly. Here's the point in saying that Jesus is lowly, is that he's accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. But we often miss this. He is more approachable than your best friend. Mm -hmm. That person that you go and talk to, things are tough. Things are really difficult right now. You just got a diagnosis. You just got this and you go call this friend. This is a dear friend. You unburden yourself to them. Jesus is nearer and closer than that. He's dearer than that. I'm not saying don't talk to your best friend, but learn to always come first to Jesus in everything. I remember saying that once to a person and they were like, oh, hey, I don't want to bother him. And you're like, what sort of view do you have of God? How limited is your God? Bother him? Huh? You don't know who he is. He's gentle. He's lowly. He's waiting for you to come. He's wanting for you to come. He's willing that you should come. There are no prerequisites. There are no hoops to jump through. What does it mean to come, you say? Well, it means to, as the means of grace are ministered, as this word is preached, and you hear come, that you come as you come to the table. You come in prayer. You come to him. You draw near to him in all the means of grace. But let me suggest that it means this in no small measure. Simply open yourself up to him, truly. That's coming to Christ. And if you say, well, okay, open myself up to him. I kind of have to prepare myself for that. 
I'm going to give you the line from the hymn. The only fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. The only fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. But you don't know the only fitness. I'm really not the only fitness. I'm not going to stop. Because anything you tell me that is an argument for why you shouldn't come is just wrong. i got to clean myself up. The Christian faith has never properly been about clean yourself up, then come to Christ. The other great line from that hymn is, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. You will never come if you tarry till you're better. Come now. There's never a better time to come. He's accessible. When you've failed again, when you've done your worst, when you've blown it big time, you're not getting this, a hand saying stop. You're getting this, beckoning arms. Come closer. Sit with me. Let me carry you. This is so irresistibly attractive, especially in one so great. Thomas Goodwin says, we're apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners. This seems natural to assume. One might even say natural law teaches the wrath of God against sin. There's a sense in which that is, there's, a, there's a testimony to that in in general, Revelation, Romans 1 and 2 tells us, as well as in Scripture, it's only God's Word that gives us this witness. It's only God's Word that tells you you have a Savior who is gentle and lowly and says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, because this is the gospel. And the gospel isn't found in nature. The gospel is found only in Scripture. Last point, and that's why this gentle and lowly one is so inviting. He appeals to sinners and sufferers, to all who labor and are heavy laden. This perfectly fits together. He's just what we needy ones most need. You're needy, aren't you? Who are those who are weary and heavy laden? Those who have a realization of their crippling sin and suffering. May you come to have such if you've never had it, and may you never lose it if you have a sense of it. Now, there's a sense in which somebody could be listening to this and hearing that Jesus is gentle and lowly and just say simply, well, you know, that's fine, that's good, I'm happy. He just accepts me as I am. Well, I pause here to note that Jesus does not show himself as gentle and lowly to all indiscriminately. He is gentle and lowly. He's not mushy and frothy. He does not present himself as gentle and lowly to those who remain stubbornly impenitent. Matthew 11, 20 to 24 addresses that. We read those woes against the cities that would not believe in him, that would not trust in him. He shows himself as a judge to the persistently unbelieving, including Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, for those who fancy themselves as wise 
and understanding, thank you very much, not needing Jesus. But for the penitent, he is gentle and lowly. His gentle and lowly embrace, we might say, is never outmatched by our sin. And he's not simply occasionally this, he's always this. To whom? To the weary, to the heavy laden, to those who see and know their sin. And when we see our sin, we often typically try to cure ourselves, right? Sometimes when we first see our sin, I remember I did, when the Lord made me aware of what a sinner I was and how much I needed Christ, my first reaction wasn't to come to Him, but to in some way deal with the heavy load of sin, to prepare myself. Or even as believers, we may self-medicate rather than coming to Him in all our difficulties. We may turn to food, drink, entertainment, sex, work, shopping. Pick, pick your, your particular way of coping, as people call it. We may turn to those things. Or we may just you know, say, I'm better than that, Pastor Strange. Okay. We may just try harder to do good, to be good, to do more, to be a good wife and mother, a beloved husband and father, a good husband and father. But the harder we try, the more we fail. Now you say, well, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to seek? No, I'm talking about in the flesh. There's a way of doing this where you're relying on yourself. And that will get you nowhere. To you, Jesus promises rest. In calming the storm at the sea, he says, peace, be still. That's what you need to come to Jesus and hear. Peace, be still. He says to all of you who are striving, laboring, heavy laden, come to me and rest. We just sang before this sermon that the Lord's day is a particular opportunity and occasion for that. The Lord's day is a day that we especially rest and we rest from all of our works we rest from all of our efforts to save ourselves and let me encourage you in this because a lot of people I remember my kids as kids they were always can't we do this that and the other on the Lord's day just you know let's let's have it like any other day and we sought to mark it as a special day and one of the things that occurred to me was to say why are we more concerned about challenging a priority for ourselves on this day this one day that the Lord says is mine, why not think about bringing the glory of this day more into the other six? Why not think about how can we commune with God all the time, in, even when we're not at the table? How can we meditate? How can we, we know Him and love Him and have a passion for Him? Bring the, the dynamic of this day into the six. That's why Newton and others said a Sabbath well spent is a week well begun. He provides this basis for rest. Note what our, our burden is. Our burden is our sin and our suffering. That's our burden. And he invites us to come to him and unburden ourselves, to cast all our cares upon him who truly cares for us. He provides the basis for such rest in the peace that he purchased for us in his life and death for us, particularly in taking upon himself the burden of our sin and paying its penalty. And he invites us in coming to him to give him our burden, 
to take his light yoke upon us. Now you might say, okay, I was waiting for this. I knew there was a catch to all this good talk of gentle and lowly. He, we have to take his yoke. No, that's not the unappealing part. Sin is the heavy burden. We've already said that. That's the unappealing part. Your sin, he takes in exchange, gives you a light yoke. Walking with him, walking with him in what's called the third use of the law. Living as a Christian is not a burden. That's the lifting of burdens. That's a joy. That's a blessing to live in that way. The curse is to to be a slave to sin, to live in your sin, not to live according to God's law. That's a real blessing. His light yoke is freedom, walking in His way, not to gain His favor, but because you have His favor. That's true joy and delight. Come to Him, not to have heavy pharisaical burdens laid on you, but to have your sin lifted off of you and his mild yoke placed upon you to guide you as a yoke guides an oxen plowing a field. A yoke that is light, that is a non-yoke compared to the burden of your sins. Come then as invited. Come then as commanded. And partake of Christ. Trust in him. Trust in him alone. Rest in him and be drawn to him who says, who says to you at your worst, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Amen. Our Father, may each of us tonight come. Come afresh or come anew. Work in our hearts and draw us to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together from the Trinity hymnal.